Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Corey, I'm really excited about this interview that we get to have with Desh Amila. You know, we've discussed on the podcast echo chambers, political turmoil, a lot of the civil unrest that we've seen. And Desh is somebody who has dedicated his career to examining kind of taboo topics, right? Some of these things that are not easy to talk about and people don't always like to hear, especially topics that people have opposing views about and that he can bring together to have a debate. You know, Desh has done a lot of things. He's a documentary filmmaker. He founded a company that takes intellectuals, you know, these thought leaders and influential people on tour. Yeah, he's hosted people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Cornell West, Julian Assange. He even had Edward Snowden. So he's the real deal. And in addition to that, it seems especially relevant to Claps because he grew up in Sri Lanka and lived through decades of civil war. And so I'm really excited for this conversation. Yeah, and Desh actually came to mind when we did the Echo Chamber episode. I think he's the perfect person to talk to about this. So with that being said, let's hop into the conversation. All right, Desh, thank you so much for meeting with us today. This is going to be super fun. I know we're excited. Happy to have you here. Oh, glad to be here, mate. So maybe to start off, um, you know, we've just done a brief intro of of yourself. Maybe you could give us uh, an idea of who Desh is and uh, sort of what what you're all about. Uh, you know, I can take a very philosophical route and say, who is this? No, look, <laughs> I am uh, at this moment, you're intrigued because I made a film. So I'm a filmmaker. I um, have a small business that we produce films and podcasts. 
I have um, you know a technology platform that's coming up. I'm an entrepreneur, um, some say serial entrepreneur. I've had multiple businesses, and I am a curious mind who tend to get into trouble a fair bit because I seem to be asking questions and having conversations that make some people uncomfortable. But I can assure you that is not my intention. I'm not a provocateur. I'm not trying to get a reaction from people, but I am interested in just having conversations with people. It seems like one of your uh, more controversial things you've been through over the last few years is the debate that you moderated between a couple of feminists. (laughs) Ah, yes. It is an extraordinary outcome, that was. Um, I did not think that would be the most controversial thing I've (laughs) done. And feminism happened to be the most controversial subject matter I I delve into. And this this is coming from somebody who ran an event right on the back of Snowden, pretty much when Snowden was very early stages when he was in hiding. We did an event in Australia with him doing a live cross. You know, I couldn't even send funds to him because we didn't know where he was and Australian banks wouldn't let, let me send funds. And I did that. That wasn't controversial, was, but not that much. I've done events with, you know, very outspoken atheists. They were somewhat controversial. I made a film about Islam um, that was okay. Then I decided to tackle the subject of feminism. That ended up being an extremely controversial event um, where, you know, one weekend of almost like 80,000 people were talking about it on social media. And that I did not see coming. Yeah. And you, you seem to kind of have made this business around getting people to talk or to talk about things that might be controversial. Um, what have you felt as far as kickback from that, you said there was 80,000 comments on social media, things like that. Do you get a lot of pain coming your way for talking about this stuff? So um, I, I don't want to take any credit and say I've cancel-proofed myself. That was never an intention, but I've, being an entrepreneur, being doing your own thing. So I've, from age six, I've, I've been in boarding school. So I've always fend for myself. Like I came to Australia on my own. So I've always known how to look after myself. So unintentionally, when I've built my businesses, I've built it anyway, in in a way that, you know, we're not beholden to an organization or or funding body, investors, etc. And I think that has given me sort of the ability to just dive into things that some people find uncomfortable. There's two sides to this, right? One is the fact that from where I come from, uh, which we will talk about later, I've seen what can happen when there are no conversations and there are taboo subjects. People, you know, you can't talk about that or you shouldn't talk about that openly. And I am extremely grateful for the freedoms I have um, and that have been provided to me in the West, the Western civilization here has given me extraordinary freedoms and ability to do what I do. So when I see that being, uh, you know, the groundwork is being built to potentially really bring an entire civilization down, it worries me. So that then forces me more to have these conversations or just shake people saying, hey, why aren't you talking about this? Why are we not doing this? So that has sort of led me to, you know, apparently some of these conversations have then become controversial, but it was never the intention. The intention was never to do something controversial for a, a, for a living because as you put it, 
these things can get you into trouble. And the trouble comes in various different ways. And some of that did come my way. As I mentioned, when we tried to do the event with Edward Snowden, uh, the banks that I've been dealing with for decades didn't want to work with me because uh, they didn't want to send funds to a criminal, although he was never convicted of anything. You know, uh, I've lost friends who you know, don't talk to me um, because um, a notable one was when we did an event with Julian Assange. Funny thing was when we booked him, when we announced the tour, um, people loved it because he was still the darling of my people. And then... Trump happened and the, you know, the email dumps happened. Everyone just turned off. I still went ahead with the event because fundamentally who Julian Assange was, he didn't change. If people just had a certain view of him that fit their narrative, Julian Assange was Julian Assange. So we ran with the event and that pissed off a lot of friends. Uh, my events with Ayan Hizy Ali uh, pissed off a whole group of people. But again, from a perspective of why I do in the bigger picture, I don't see this, you know, sort of losing friends as something that I should worry too much because I have a feeling some of these, you know, some of the people that you know, have sort of distanced themselves from me over time come around and, and see some of the things that I, I was, you know, talking about at that point, super important because it's at their doorsteps now. And it's having an impact on their lives. So I haven't been cancelled yet. I have, you know, people have had uh, taken attempts. Like we've had protests at our outside of events. We've had death threats at some of our events. We've had, like uh, I, I mentioned to you before we started this, yesterday I heard from Amazon who are refusing to host my movie, um, which is quite unusual. They will host almost anything. They have my last movie as well. Uh, and they've been, you know, it's been successful. But this movie, because I am talking about political subject matter, they just don't want to touch it. Again, the way I've built this whole thing, that's not going to be the end of it. People will get to see my movie. And I just have to go around, jump through some hoops. I, I hope that answered your question in a way. Yeah. So you mentioned that your purpose isn't to stir the pot. You're not trying to create controversy. What is the intended outcome of these conversations that you're fostering? What, what are you trying to prevent or what are you trying to make happen? So I, I have no interest in just poking people, name calling people, or just trying to get a reaction from people in the sense where it is for you know, when you see those videos online uh, that are so prevalent, like, you know, XYZ destroys, uh, you know, ABC, that is somewhat entertaining, but in the long term, it's quite detrimental. I don't know if you can reflect in your life and remember a moment when somebody uh, shamed you into changing a position, you know, that that's really your guilting, uh, your, you know, it, that, it's not how the human condition work. So for me, what's important is first appealing to the humanity of a person and trying to have a conversation, hopefully finding some semblance of commonality and then having these so-called difficult conversations. But when you break it down, it's not really that difficult. It is just people tend to have um, certain walls um, you know, or blinders 
for that matter, you know, and they only see certain perspective. And there is something to be said about, you know, people's lived perspectives, right? For some people, they, they can't even comprehend a certain set of views because they have, it, it doesn't make much sense. And I know this is a myth, but, it, you know, the, the, the story of Indian Americans not seeing the ships sail towards them because they've never seen a ship is a, is a good metaphor of sorts. If you don't know, something's existence you can't really comprehend it and for me it is potentially to first and foremost from my end i don't know a lot of stuff so help me understand what is it that you see that i don't see so it's that my need my curiosity my wanting to learn from you um, and then potentially showing a few things that i've learned um, and I could be wrong, but let me present it to you. That's sort of my approach whenever I, ha- I try to have conversations. But what I've learned is a lot of people take ideas and they sort of live for that idea. They, you know, their personhood is so attached to that idea. When I'm trying to question something, you know, ask a question or two, they people tend to feel they get very people get defensive as like I'm attacking their personhood. And with most of these conversations, I actually don't know that person personally. Uh, I'm just trying to have a conversation, but I am interested in the ideas of those people. But people get it the wrong way. You know, earlier you mentioned the, the controversial event uh, with feminism and your users can go to YouTube and actually see the whole event. And there's an audio version if you want the unedited full audio version of the event. In that, I am trying to understand feminism from two schools of feminists. One, a second wave feminist who I uh, agree with some of the things that she said, Christina Hoff Summers. And there's a, a new wave feminist, Roxane Gay, who, again, I agree with some of the things she said. I was trying to learn and hopefully the audience to gain something from it. But again, especially Roxanne, took some of my line of question very personally she thought i was attacking her but that wasn't my intention uh, and i think you know it, it's a, it's an ongoing learning curve but there are some serious challenges for us to have these kind of conversations because of um now what our society societal norms and what people push as norms uh, they they prevent us from having any meaningful conversations conversations that progress and the, the solution is more or less what we're doing here, what you guys are doing. You know, it's, it's the documentary, it's this long-form documentary, it's the long-form podcast. It's more of us doing this than we will sort of hopefully bring back this sort of what used to be how people used to interact with each other. You know, it, it seems like this you know, new solution, but it isn't. This is what we used to do. Last thing I want to say, and, and we know this, right? We have two ways of progressing ideas. We've had this for entirety of human history. We have violence or we have conversation. You know, back in the day, violence worked. You want to spread the idea of your religion or, you, you know, your, your idea of how to run a country, violence, boom. You, you take over another country, kill as many people as you can, and, and then you spread it, right? Many religions today exist in certain places because that was the method used. And then we learned that's not a sustainable way of doing things. You know, we now have better ways of doing it by having conversation, you know. So knowing that uh, truth should encourage more people to do that. Something you said made me think, um, you know, there is no middle ground anymore. It seems like 
you can't just be the middleman. You can't agree with a little bit of what everyone says. You get pushed to one side or the other. You know, politically, I don't find myself on the far left or the far right. I think I'm pretty central. Um, I have some ideas that lean left. I have some ideas that might lean right. But if I talk to anybody and express any of those sentiments, I'm immediately pegged to one side or the other. If I express something slightly left, then to a conservative, I am far left and vice versa on the right. And again, it's because of these these echo chambers. Now, we recently did an episode on echo chambers and how we kind of pit ourselves into a corner. We reinforce our beliefs through the social media um, that we consume or the news that we consume. How do you feel that social media plays a role in today's political climate? Um, well, Hollywood has told us a story for, you know, three, four decades. AI, when they attack, it's going to be this metal robot or something like that, uh, that is going to destroy society. What we didn't realize, AI is already here and it is already having a terrible impact onto society. And it's just an algorithm. Um, and social media's lifeblood relies on these algorithms and their entire business model is built on grabbing our attention. It's not built on dividing us, but grabbing our attention. And again, I don't think any coder ever wrote a piece of code or an algorithm with the intention of, you know, what is happening now, but the outcome nonetheless in this great social media experiment is division. You cannot deny that is the case because a system is built to grab your attention. What grabs our attention? The things that interest us. And when that algorithm is perfected to a point, sometimes before we even think, the system knows what we want. Uh, Tristan Harris put out a great documentary, The Social Dilemma, on Netflix, and it kind of shows it in like little characters and whatnot. That is the truth of social media. And back in the day, talking about politics, not everyone did that. It wasn't the norm. You know, it's important people have an interest into how your societies are run. So it's, in, it's good to have interest in politics. But where this came to head uh, and really have, I mean, the impact that American politics had in, uh, on the world is America has the largest megaphone. And if you look at who has the largest following on social media and who has the largest risk, it's generally American personalities. It was never politicians. It was generally reserved for entertainers. But once the power was given to politicians, now politicians are our entertainers. Can you really say AOC is not a performer? She's brilliant at what she does. Can you say Donald Trump was not a performer? When he had an account, he was brilliant at it, you know. But the byproduct of this performance politics is this division uh, because they are playing to an audience. And, uh, you know, it made it very easy, again, going back to the narrative of, you know, good versus evil, which is, which is not how the world works. It's how films work. And I'm coming as, as a filmmaker, and that's how you tell stories. It's, you know, more stories, it's very easy to do that. But when you are used to that and then you have a performer, you either love or you absolutely hate. So again, the two, two comparisons, they're not the same, uh, but just as an example. So social media has played an incredibly pivotal role. Now, in America... Uh, whether one likes to admit it or not, 
it played a important role that led to the January 6th insurrection. During an Obama era, when he was using, he was also cleverly using social media, I don't think anyone could ever predict where this is going to head, that it is going to end up in thousands of people rushing Capitol Hill. You can't even comprehend that. But what you didn't know, and this is what most Americans didn't realize, social media was already being manipulated in places like Myanmar. What happened to the Rohingya people was it started on Facebook. Uh, in Sri Lanka, same thing happened. A number of um, Muslim people were killed uh, and businesses burned down. This is after the civil war finished, by the way. And it's because of rumors spread on social media. Again, there is no planet that social media can wash their hands and say, we have nothing to do with any of this. You know, we are just providing a platform. That would have worked, you know, a decade ago. It, it no longer works. We're here now. And I think we as a uh, you know, human race, we're in a pivotal moment here. Whatever the way we regulate these platforms, because the genie is out. You know, there's, it doesn't matter how you try to tweak the algorithm. Billion dollar corporations have been made. <laughs> They're not going to change anything unless they are forced to. And need, this tweaking needs to happen. I mean, right now, all across the world, governments are paying attention and they are trying to do things. But, oh boy, I mean, there are no easy answers here. But for us to really address this, we all have to acknowledge social media in the current form is a problem. We need to fix it. And it's it's getting more and more intense too. I mean, just recently, we're seeing this new issue with censorship, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people on the left will celebrate that Donald Trump was kicked off of Twitter And, you know, in my own personal life, it's been great not to see his tweets all the time. But that being said, it's scary that a giant corporation like this can decide what voices you get to hear and what voices you don't get to hear. Um, Of course, like you just said, in the very case of Amazon deciding not to publish your movie because they don't agree with the politics of it. You know, there's this narrative that the far right perpetuate and a lot of conspiracy thinking comes from. Uh, this world government, you know, globalization, etc. I mean, they use United Nations as an example. United Nations is more or less a toothless tiger. Um, what people don't realize is, again, this is more or less already happened, right? When was the last time you searched on Bing or some other thing? You don't. You, you don't even use the word search. You Google, right? Um, and what people don't realize, majority of the websites we visit, uh, ho- it's hosted and managed by Amazon. And in certain countries, your primary news source is Facebook. And it's already happening where the way we live our lives, it's controlled by a small group of corporations. That is very different to people's elected governments managing our society because corporations are run by fundamentally different rules. So I share the same sentiment. I find uh, Donald Trump as a human being quite a poor excuse for one, but I also have to acknowledge 75 million people voted for him. So he did speak to a certain group of people, whether I like him or not. 
And he was very cleverly using a platform to speak to his people. Now, I again, there's now data to corroborate since his removal, QAnon conspiracies and a range of things have massively gone down. But again, a, a tech platform made that call on their own. Not only that, oh, just closer to the election, there was one of the candidate's sons was in, embroiled in some controversy. Now, if he was Trump's son, it would have made the news in multitude ways. But he was Joe Biden's son. And then they made a choice collectively not to release any of that. Now, of course, there is the hangover from what happened in 2016. But again, you know, historically, these should have been policy decisions well thought out. But it isn't. Like, corporations are making their call. I, I found, you know, I've never been on Parler, but um, how Parler was removed gave me pause. I was like, damn, Google App Store kicked out. Apple App Store kicked out. Wait, where else do you get it from? That's it. Those are the two places. And then Amazon Web Service kicked out of the web? Jeez, that's insane. And again, I'm not defending any of the absolute vile you know, things people say on those platforms. And again, I'm not defending Donald Trump in any stretch of anyone's imagination. But this should make people a little bit uncomfortable. My movie is an intellectual uh, exploration, a, a political thesis on political extremism. I come from the political left and my director for the film is sort of politically fluid. I think he has more sort of center-right ideas. But we came together to make a film to talk about something that we find extremely important with some of the greatest thinkers in the world on the film. And Noam Chomsky, Steven Pinker, you know, and then Amazon comes out and say, nope, you're not going to get this out to the world. That, that's not right. You, anyone should be able to see that. There's something wrong with that. I'm not forcing anyone to watch the film, but I'm asking to use the, one of the world's largest platforms that is generally freely available to anybody. Yeah, it is extremely worrying. And I think world leaders need to put their heads together and come up with ways to tackle this. I know Australia has made news because the Australian government is more or less forcing uh, Google and Facebook to pay for news. Um, I mean, I don't know if you heard, but Facebook literally shut down all news or anything that even remotely sounded like news pages from Facebook. Like, and they told all Australians, you can't post news on Facebook. It was just news. And part of that, the takedown was, I think, some fire department, some uh, the Bureau of Meteorology, um, some, you know, women's health organizations, um, all the satirical websites uh, in Australia. They were all taken down. Uh, they even blocked their own page. Facebook Australia was blocked because they deemed themselves to be news. And that was them making a point saying, if we don't get our way, we're just going to block everyone. That's a crazy, like, you serious? So, I mean, as much as I have my disagreements with the conservative government that runs Australia, I give, you know, they, they're like, okay, 
You can do that, but we're not going to stop. We're going to pass this legislation. Now, I don't know. I haven't read the legislation, so I don't know what the outcome is. But I think the world leaders really need to have fundamentally different approach how to work with these global tech companies. They, they're gone from tech companies. They've become pretty much like a utility. And I know that's a new can of worms that one, one could open, but it's all, it is pretty much a utility. Um, so we should look at it in a different set of eyes. So I want to talk about your documentary, and I think we'll get to that in just a minute. But before we get there, I wanted to ask you, obviously, you come from Sri Lanka. You were born there. I believe you lived there until your early adulthood. What was it like living in a place where, like you said before, there's two ways to solve things. It's either through a conversation or through violence. Sri Lanka went the violence route. I've heard talk about this idea of a civil war in the United States. Right, that comes up all the time with how much political discord we have. So I'm curious, what was your experience in Sri Lanka growing up in a civil war? Well, um, when you're a child growing up, and you know, I was there for almost two decades, um, and I was born in 1981, the year the civil war started. So you know, I've only known Sri Lanka as a country of war. So living through that, coming to the West, and then recently hearing people talk about civil war, it's almost like they really want it to happen. Uh, I can assure you, you don't want a civil war because whatever romanticized story or idea you've read about civil war, it is worse. So growing up in Sri Lanka, I, when, I was, when you're growing up there, you think that's, that's the norm. That's how, the, you know, I genuinely, up until I left Sri Lanka, believed it's the greatest place on planet Earth to live. Um, so a very young age, I was put to a boarding school, um, which is quite unusual for where, where my family comes from. I was born in a, a, a small town, you would probably call it a village. And generally, you know, you, you stay with your parents. Um, but I was, you know, from year six, I was in a boarding school. Uh, I didn't know why that happened until literally probably about a year ago. I now know it was one reason was because uh, I remember my dad wasn't around for about five years. Um, he wasn't around because one part, the reason was there was a threat on his life because of his political uh, beliefs and work he was doing. So the civil war in Sri Lanka, let me break it down. So it was the majority Sinhalese government's army fighting the minority extremist group, terrorist group, Liberation Tamil Tigers of Elam, LTTE. Now, LTTE, before Al-Qaeda took off uh, the title, were the world's most dangerous terrorist group. That's what FBI labeled them as. Be before 9-11, they were the most sophisticated terrorist group in the world. They were the ones who invented the suicide belt. So the government was fighting them primarily in the north, of the country. At the same time, at the south of the country, there was a Maoist uprising. There was a rebellion within the Sinhalese majority. I live in the middle of the country and we were affected from both sides. So growing up, things that I used to see, now in retrospect, no child should ever see. I remember, you know, Coming back from your holiday, coming back home, my mom would uh, put her hand over my eyes um, when I walk past certain areas. What I know now, 
uh, she was preventing me from seeing a dead body on the side of the road. Uh, I remember, and this is very distinct, and I want to stress, you know, this experience is not unique to me. 23 million Sri Lankans went through this with me. Um, you know, I remember walking on the street and you will see middle of the road, there are a bunch of tires that's smoldering tires, they're burning. What I know now as an adult, middle of those tires was a human being has been murdered um, for their political beliefs or whatever they stood for. We used to have a joke, which is the white van syndrome, which simply means if you're a journalist or somebody who's outspoken, one day a white van will arrive and there will be the last time anyone's ever seen you. Till today, tens of thousands of journalists missing in Sri Lanka. At one point, it was the most dangerous place for a journalist in the whole world, worse than the cartels. Um, you could not speak out even as a joke. And when you have a civil war, you have uh, you know, people at power who are fundamentally paranoid. Uh, so you, whoever you may dislike will end up dead. And it's not a, you know, a, a hypothetical, it is what happens. I remember, again, growing up, talking to friends about how many of ours died versus how many of theirs died today. You know, we look at news, it's constantly about the war. So we used to keep tallies and you're like, great, <clears throat> 30 of theirs died, only five of ours died. Great day. You know, and family, family friends and, you know, uh, relatives uh, who are from rural areas would go to war because it's your duty. And you hear the heroic stories of, you know, how your soldiers did this. Now, in retrospect, I know the same stories were told on the other side. You know, for us, they were the enemy. But for the other, we were the enemy. And I have this story, uh, a true story. I got a scholarship. I went to Colombo, which is a big city. And Sri Lanka is a a, a cricket-crazy nation. Uh, but I wasn't interested in cricket because everyone at the big school I went to was playing cricket. And you know, at one point we had like three or four people from the national team from our school. I kind of didn't like that everybody did that. So I wanted to play baseball. Sri Lankans don't play baseball. <laughs> so there was a uh, you know baseball team put together and I wasn't good enough to make it to the team. Uh, I say now with a smile, but the story I'm about to tell you is a lot more it's a worst, it's a terrible story. The team that I couldn't make got on a bus. Uh, uh, it's a public bus. Uh, they were going for a game and somebody else got onto the bus and he was wearing a suicide vest and the whole team died. Uh, 40 something people on that bus died. Uh, nobody survived. And you know, I used to then drive later uh, in, in, get on a bus and go past the bridge under the bridge that the bus exploded and you can still see the shrapnel uh, holes hey, that's no in no world that should be ever normal the sheer number of politicians that got assassinated at one point the ltt cross the border, went to India and killed the prime minister of India because he got involved with the, Austra- uh, the Sri Lankan civil war. Like it, the whole thing, if you were to read about what happened in Sri Lanka, and again, any civil war, it is nothing like what you think it would be. It is just a catastrophe. And the ripples of the impact of that, it 
transcends generations. I have a friend of mine who is now active in politics in Sri Lanka. We caught up a couple of years ago and he was telling me how an entire generation is missing. So for example, if you look at people in power in Sri Lanka, they are 70, 80, you know, very old, um, or they're very young. The middle group doesn't exist because all the leaders were killed. And I, it, it shook me. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, a bit younger than my dad's age. There are no real leaders because all of them were killed by one side or the other. And that's not a country you want to live in. You don't want that. Um, and that plunges the country, the economies into uh, you know, such a bad place. It, it's not that easy to recover. So I, I hope that paints a, a bit of a picture of living through a civil war. Actually, I want to add, add one, one. This is quite vivid on my memory all the time. And again, people, whenever the people talk about it, I just remember this, which is you would go to school um, uh, and on your way, you get stopped by uh, military in full military gear with holding AK-47s and they go through your school bag. They check your national ID uh, to make sure that you're okay to go into the city. And that happens all the time. I would go home from Colombo to Badulla, which is a, like a 10 hour, bu- 10, yeah, 10 hour bus ride back in the day. And you get stopped like three times. You know, you're just trying to get a little bit of sleep and then you get randomly stopped and everyone gets off the bus. They go through, they check for bombs and, just like everyday living is this it's not normal you go through this i remember one time uh, i was probably seven six or seven this holiday i was back home with my mom my, at that point my single mom for a short period and my young sister at about i remember it as very late at night it's probably like eight o'clock at night but i remember it very late somebody banged the door the front door and we opened the door Mom didn't want to open the door, but they were banging and they were screaming. So she eventually opened up, had people with balaclavas and guns uh, uh, demanding that mom hand over her national ID card because that's how the police and the, uh, the military knew who you are if you don't have that. So the idea, the Maoist rebels, was to eliminate the ID card so the police can't work out who's who. Can you imagine a six-year-old, seven-year-old waking up to that? That you don't want your children ever going through anything like that. So that's civil war for you. You painted a really good picture there. And I I like what you say about how nothing like that should be normal. But to you, it was normal as a child who grew up in it, who experienced it every day. Um, And that's devastating. And like you said, the things that it does to the economy, uh, that does to culture, you know, chances of growing up with a normal education um, all of that is is terrifying. Um, but you, so you ended up leaving at 19. Is that right? Yeah. How were you able to achieve that? I, I ask that question every day. How did that happen is you know, one part I really wanted to. So there was an element of determination. Uh, but from a purely financial perspective and where my family come from, it was very unlikely because I had friends um, from the college I went to with a far better financial stability and they couldn't get to Australia. They couldn't get a visa. I say I got lucky. I got a visa where I didn't think I, there was any chance of me getting it. And it was always, it was almost a joke that, uh, you know, I was telling my parents because when I said to my parents, I want to go to Australia, they, they, they pitied me. They said, oh, 
you know, uh, look, you can try, but it's, it's not going to happen. And even if it happens, we, we don't have the money to send you. They didn't have the money to buy a ticket. It's just, you know, when we got the letter saying you got the visa and, you know, everyone was floored. And then, and I was like, okay, let's do it. And they were like, I don't know. We don't know how to do it. So my parents and relatives got together, pulled some money, begged and borrowed wherever they could, went to banks, went to people they knew. Um, they managed to get enough money to pay for, at that point, I think um, like 10% of my first semester fees, which was a lot of money for them um, and a one-way ticket. And um, um, I think about $500 Aussie worth um, and said, good luck. That's it. You're on your own now because that's what you wanted, right? And I did. So I, I am immensely grateful for my parents and my relatives who managed to do that. And um, so that's how I got to Australia. It was the first time getting on a plane, first time leaving the country, <laughs> first time you know, getting to a society that spoke English with you know, a very limited to no understanding of how the language works. But I knew I had to. This is my way out. So... I, I did the numbers just a little bit looking at the Sri Lankan civil war. Um, it was something like a hundred thousand dead and 20,000 disappeared, which was, I think it was 0.6 around 0.6% of the country. When you, when you convert that, if it was in the U S that this happened, it'd be somewhere around 2 million people either dead or disappeared. And I think everyone can agree that that's no result that we would want. You know, the Sri Lankan civil war lasted for 30 years, I believe. 28 years. Okay. So to me, when I hear people talking about it in this sort of romanticized way, and I see these extreme on the left and extreme on the right saying, just bring it, let's do it, let's get it over with. Um, I, I appreciate you being willing to sort of talk us through that and realize that it's not fun. <laughs> it is not something that we want. Uh, and I can certainly say for myself that I don't want it. Now, I'm curious what you think, seeing the political discord that we have right now, not just in the U.S., but around the world, do you feel like we're headed in that direction? Or do you feel like we're going to fall short of that? What do you think has to be done to stop it? Well, there was a moment that it, it did cross my mind, is this where it's heading? Um, but I don't think it is going to be the case unless something fundamentally uh, changes in the political landscape. I think um, uh, the Trump presidency gave a lot of people from both ends of the extreme spectrum uh, a reason for wanting one, um, because I mean, for the far left, he was the he was the Hitler that they've been saying that will uh, come to America. He depicted that for them there was enough evidence to say yep this is this is hitler and then with trump's own rhetoric uh, joe biden or anything anyone from the left was stalin for the people on the far right so you know neither of those statements are true because not, it, it's not the case um and i think there were many moments where i felt ooh, is is american democracy strong enough to withhold what's what's happening i think especially um what happened after the election showed that there are some systems that's still in place that can withhold a potential uh, catastrophe from actually happening. So I don't think America is heading to a civil war. Uh, but some of the cracks that has appeared uh, are now gaping holes. Um, and 
unless they are addressed, they're just not going to go away. You know, Joe Biden is not going to fix America's problems. Uh, you know, uh, if you if you consider Trump was the problem, you've completely misunderstood how Trump got there and who that 75 million people who voted for him. It, there are much larger issues at play, and that will take quite a while, but I don't think it's going to get to a point of civil war. I, uh, I hope you're right. I certainly do. Let's, uh, let's take the last few minutes, and I want to talk about the documentary. Um, so Kellen and I had the opportunity to watch it. Thank you for sending us the link. It's not released yet, um, but it was really interesting to me because we so often focus on the extremism on the right. Because it's the extremism that we see it, the most. I feel like it's the most obvious and in our face. It feels like the most dangerous. Um, and not a lot of people talk about the extremism on the left, which is one that's a little more veiled. It looks like tolerance in a lot of ways because that's what they're preaching, but it doesn't always come out tolerantly. Um, and you, and this is what intrigues me the most, is that you are a person who considers yourself more on the left than on the right. And so... It's fascinating to me that you would put your resources and your time and your money towards creating a documentary that highlights the extremism on the left. I'm curious what your motivation was behind that. Instead of focusing on the right, why did you choose to talk about the left? Well, you pretty much answered that question because the reason you know about the right and the atrocities of the far right and they are atrocities, they have defined human history um, and defiled it. They've been talked about, um, and it's very easy to identify. Now, I've been somebody uh, I had on a podcast push, push back on this, but ultimately I stand by this statement, which is the ideas of the far right from a global perspective it's, they all stem from a single ideology, and it is very simple. It is racial superiority. Everything stems from that point. But the ideas of the left, my people, it's a bit more nuanced. And the furthest of the left, actually, and this is what we are trying to do in the movie, and this is what I want to understand, because some of my people are saying things that, make absolutely no sense. It is the opposite of um, what we should be talking about. And all of a sudden, uh, ideas that used to be ours are now far right or old right ideas like freedom or liberty. Um, and like, wait, hold on. Those were the things we were, <laughs> that was, those were our slogans. How did it go over there? And how am I now white supremacy adjacent? That was uh, something somebody called me. Like that, I didn't even know that was an insult, but it is now. <laughs> and somehow, um, you know, just asking questions from my people is akin to a, a, a violent attack on their personhood. And I was like, hey, this, is, this is not how this should be. So I realized before something bad happens, I wanted to examine my own house to a certain degree. And in this film, I don't agree with everything that we are presenting because it was written by Kurt. And, but that's okay. I am all for good faith attempts at looking at complex subject matter and talking about complex issues. 
So for me, it was to generate conversation about things that are making me uncomfortable and making a ton of people uncomfortable, but no one's willing to talk about it. Well, not in the way that we decide to talk about in this movie. So it, it's, it's, it's just that. Like, I'm worried and I want to talk about it. And it is some of my own people that I am going to point a finger at saying this is wrong. So be it. You, you categorize it as left, but I would categorize it as the far left. It comes across as progressive ideas, uh, tolerant ideas, but really uh, it, some of the actions, it's the opposite. And this is a point we make in the movie. You've got to understand the philosophical underpinnings of the ideology. We go all the way back to postmodernism, the beginning of postmodernism, to show how this all led to um, Marxism and Marxism-inspired ideas that's happening right now. What people don't necessarily realize is, you know, okay, what are the origins? And why does the far-left ideas sound so academic and so it sounds meaty? It sounds like, okay, that makes sense. Because the pseudo-academic facade that these things present, it just sort of, you know, it convinces people quite easily. But because it hasn't been talked about very often, it's hard to break down to see where do they come from. And this is why I was like, this is important. Now, so people can understand. And when they talk about this without attacking the person, when somebody comes with these ideas, you can now say, actually, X, Y, Z, here's some information so I want to present in the movie so you can have these conversations. You can have these better conversations. You can challenge it in a meaningful way. So I know we're kind of at the end of our time, but I'm wondering with all of your experience, you know, growing up in Sri Lanka, living through a civil war, being a part of all these conversations that might be more controversial and trying to bring people together and seeing what's happening with the political divide. If if you could say one thing and, and you knew that every one of our listeners would take that to heart, what would you tell them? Okay, this may even sound like a bit of a cliche, but this really is something everyone should do. Uh, talk to the other, whoever the other is. Whether if you saw some value in a Trump, a Donald Trump, and you voted for Donald Trump, what you know about the political left is a caricature of what the political left is. If you are an ardent Trump hater, you're on the other side, what you think you know of the MAGA supporter is a caricature of what that person is for the most part, for the largest part. So go talk to somebody, but talk with the simple intention of first listening. Why do they believe? Why do they hold that worldview? Having conversations with the other is so important because if you don't, you otherize a group of people, then it's easier to hate, easier to uh, uh, despise the other. Don't let that happen. And we have our own political biases. You're going to have to face things. You know, you, they're going to, the, the other person that you are going to talk to are going to say things that you don't like to hear, but that's okay. You know, right now, what we lack is 
this communication and ability to or willingness to do it because somehow it's it's a, it's a terrible thing to do you know if you have an uncle who may have ideas that you deem racist not talking to him is not the answer you know, because he is going to vote next time uh, and uh, if you have a uh, you know a younger brother or a sister who thinks the system needs to be burned to the ground to rebuild it and uh, socialism is the answer not talking to that person is not the answer because they are going to burn the thing damn thing down we don't want either of those things happening that's i appreciate your time today this has been uh, a lot of fun for us. I know we've learned a lot. We're really looking forward to this. And I know that uh, our listeners are going to take a lot of great stuff for this. So appreciate your time today. And hopefully we can uh, have you on another time. We're going to link in the description to um, all of your information where they can find you. Um, do you want to just quickly tell us maybe a good website to find you at um, podcast right now, right now I, I uh, ask everyone to, when the movie comes out, watch it. It's at betterleftfilm.com. I, I encourage people to watch it directly from the website so it doesn't, you know, we, we can actually at least recoup the expenses. But documentary filmmakers like myself, we don't make this film to make money. It is simply so we can get the message out. So that's the best place to reach out. If you want to personally contact me, I'm readily available on in the social media platforms uh, and through my website. So um, search me, you'll find me. But for the purposes of if you if there's an iota of uh, information you found valuable in this conversation you will enjoy the movie and you will gain something from it betterleftunsaidfilm.com thank you awesome thank you dash Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.